but we thank them for their ministry and we just praise God for it. Jesus is the son of God. It's a long passage. Join me in John chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I am my father are one, praise God. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many works, many good works I have shown you from my father. <clears throat> for which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If you call them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? You do not do the works of my Father, you do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about the man were true. And many believed in him there. Jesus is the son of God. There is so much to dive into this passage. I won't get to every point in it, but you have my commitment. I will try. Last week, we talked about Jesus' teaching about being the good shepherd. Now, it's not clear from the text, but then there is a gap, and it's a gap that John doesn't make clear. In the beginning of the chapter, when he talked about the teaching on being a good shepherd, it says this was during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a mid-fall, early-fall feast. Now, he's confronted again by the religious leaders during a feast called the Feast of Dedication. Now, I know all of you are Bible scholars, so I'm sure you'll be able to turn to the passage in the Old Testament that speaks of the Feast of Dedication. Let me let you off the hook. You won't find it. There isn't anything in the Old Testament 
that speaks of the Feast of Dedication because it was not a feast proclaimed in the law. The feast arose out of that 400-year period, often referred to as the intertestamental period, when, after when the Old Testament ended and when the New Testament begins. It's about 400 years. This feast celebrates a victory that the people of Israel won over a group of oppressors known as the Seleucidids. And the main group within the children of Israel that won this victory were called the Maccabees. This happened around 165 BC. In this victory, not only in the victory, but in the way the victory was brought in one part in particular, they instituted this feast to commemorate and retake the temple and sanctify it. Also in the victory, at one point when the enemy had cut off all their resources and they were running out of oil for their lamps, God sustained them for an eight-day period with light, even though they had no oil. Over time, they changed the name from the Feast of Dedication to the Festival of Lights. We know it today as Hanukkah. End of my history lesson. It's good to know some history. So, but this is a winter feast. So my point here is that three months have transpired between John chapter 10, verse 21, and verse 22. During this feast, Jesus is walking, and he's minding his own business. You ever been someplace just minding your own business, and you feel like just trouble came up looking for you? Well, they did. Verse 24, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, Jesus was not being evasive to any of the people, nor to the religious leaders. The religious leaders wanted him to come out and say that he was the Messiah. The people at different points throughout the Gospels wanted him to come out and say he was the Messiah. And he didn't come out and say it in those words because he knew how they framed that term. You see, Jesus came as the Messiah to rescue people from the bondage of sin. He came to pay the penalty that they couldn't pay. Jesus did not come to bring down the Roman Empire. Jesus did not come as a military leader to bring political power. He did not come to help fight off their oppressors. He came to defeat a power much greater and of much more danger than the power of Rome or the power of any of the Roman Empire. He came to defeat the power of hell. He came to put the devil back in his place. And he came to make that evil devil toothless. Aren't you glad he did? So it's challenging to proclaim himself as Messiah when they weren't using the same dictionary that he was. More often than not, Jesus, and we need to understand this, especially in our day, that is so power hungry and so concerned with what tribe or group you belong to getting over on other tribes or other groups. I am committed 
to the idea that Jesus, more often than not, is much more concerned with what goes on inside of you than what goes on around you. They wanted a warrior. They wanted a political champion. Jesus came as a servant and a suffering servant at that. He responds, I told you, but you did not believe me. He declared that the works that the Father had done through him speak of who he was. He declared they didn't believe in who he was because they were not his sheep. They were not in tune with his voice. They refused to let that voice of the master go deep within their souls. Then he declares a unity between him and the father by saying, I and the father are one. Hmm. And they refused to acknowledge. And so because they understood what he was saying in that phrase, they picked up stones to stone him, to kill him. It's often amazed me how people don't need proof to believe nonsense, but they need proof from us as Christians to embrace the love of God. That's why we need to pray that God softens hearts because the majority of the people in this world have bought into lie after lie after lie. And they want God to kind of perform for them. Come into my life, show me what you got, perform a few miracles for me, and we'll see if I can then be convinced that you are real. Obviously, those people haven't read Hebrews 11, chapter 6, which says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, yes, we do pray often that God prove yourself, make yourself real. But let's be clear. He's gonna, he, he wants to soften hearts and open blind eyes. God doesn't need to prove himself. He knows he is God. He knows who he is, and any doubt that any person sends his way is not going to bruise his ego. Now, we pray that the Holy Spirit reaches hearts so that they may stop refusing to embrace Jesus. We pray that our society stops denying the truth, and the greatest truth we could ever have, Jesus is Lord. But God doesn't have to prove anything. God is not a circus act that performs on commands. Come on, God, wow me somehow. Well, in my life, his love has wowed me. His care has wowed me. His protection has wowed me. His presence in all of our lives has wowed me. And yet we live in a generation that looks for miracles. And many might think it just seems to be a modern thing. People didn't always have that problem. Let me correct you. 
Matthew chapter 12, I'll begin reading in verse number 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no one will be given a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We live in a generation that wants to see signs before they will believe. Jesus said that's a sign of being evil. And we need to understand this because I know Christians who bounce from service to service, convention to convention, tent meeting to tent meeting because they're looking for signs. Now, I want to see God move the way he did in the book of Acts. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit as laid out in the book of Acts are for today. But they're for God's power to move in my life. They're not to entertain me. Yes, our God still works today. Yes, our God still performs miracles. Yes, our God still shows his mighty works the way he did in days of old. And yes, our God still gives signs and wonders. I believe that. But ultimately, unless people have a genuine encounter with the love of God and his heart touches their heart, if they don't get to his heart, his hand isn't going to sustain them. They'll see a miracle. They'll be impressed by it. They may even come over. But if there is no change in their heart, that's going to fade. I've seen it too often. People need to see their sin before God and realize that Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus came to deliver them. And for that, he gave the greatest miracle, the greatest sign ever the resurrection. He rose from the dead, like he said here, that's the sign I will give you. Like Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, a picture I still can't put in my head. I'm trying to think of this big fish, and I'm in the belly, and I'm not being digested. The resurrection is the greatest sign. Now, it's interesting. Back in the first century, and their biggest difficulty with the Christian message was not the resurrection. Philly doesn't know why, but their issue wasn't with someone being raised from the dead. Their biggest challenge was the incarnation. Jesus God coming in flesh. Most people believed, if they had a faith, that the flesh was evil and that there was nothing possible that could be good from it. So how could God come in the flesh? So that was their biggest challenge. Ours today is when you tell people that Jesus rose from the dead, they raise an eyebrow. But church, he is alive. He is alive. They wanted to stone him, and then he claimed, you can't, you can't take me out. I and my father are one. They are without parallel. 
God became man and rose from the dead. Any who fight against this idea, Jesus is saying, you're not my sheep. But you see, to you and me who are his sheep, he is so many things. And we want to embrace all the titles that Jesus is, but we also want to realize any of these titles, he is so much more. Yes, he is the good shepherd. Yes, he is the bread of life. Yes, he is living water. Yes, he is the light of the world. Yes, he is the great I am. Yes, he is the rock of ages. Yes, he is the risen savior. But church, at the end of the day, he is the son of God. He is the son of almighty God. And he and the father are one. And that is the only way any of us can ever be one. I've said this before. I believe in a genuine way, our world is painfully looking for unity. I think like many of us, as we share on the prayer line, they're sick and tired of all the division in the world. It's painful to watch. It's painful to be a part of. I've only known a few people in my life, a life who I could really say they enjoyed when everybody was fighting. Only a few. And don't get worried, none of them are here. But my experience has been that people don't like division. It's uncomfortable, it's painful, the tension is so awkward. And so we seek things to be united on. But we seek things that are going to perish. We seek philosophies that are going to waste away and be gone. There is only one thing, one place of unity that will last forever, and his name is Jesus. John chapter 17 Verses 21 and 22, uh, 20 and 21, Jesus is praying for his people just before he enters Jerusalem for his final week. I do not pray for these alone, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That has always spoken to me. That has always meant something to me. I have, throughout the course of my adult Christian life, always found it, found a way to get past some of the differences that exist between the different traditions in the body of Christ. I have worked retreats as a minister where the other minister working the retreat was from a different part of God's family. I've worked with a Lutheran minister, a Baptist minister. I remember when I worked with an Episcopal minister and I believed we were brothers in Jesus. Although I will say, 
when I worked with the Episcopal minister, I didn't realize as we were serving communion and I was preparing the pita bread that because of what they believe the pita bread comes, that all of it had to be consumed in that one moment. And I prepared way too much. So we served it to everybody in the room and there were like three whole pieces of pita left over. And he looked at me and said, Hiram, go get some water because you and I have to finish all this bread. And I was like, gee, I don't know if I could ever be Episcopal. <laughs> or I would learn to prepare a few uh, smaller portions. I say all that because in this passage, God is, Jesus is asking and praying for us, not just those who were there, but he says, but also for those who will believe through my word in the future. That's you and me. And he's praying that we become one for a number of reasons. We are at peace and it's a blessing when we are one. But what he says in here is that, that we may be one so that the world will know that you sent me. The greatest testimony, the greatest witness, the greatest sign to the world that Jesus is Lord when Christians stop fighting with one another and we become one in him. This is our prayer. Jesus, the promised Messiah. Yes, he is many things. He, but he's more than a great teacher. He's more than the friend of sinners. He's more than a healer. He's more than the greatest source of wisdom we could ever know. Jesus, our Jesus, is the Son of God. Our Jesus is, the, as John's Gospel opened, is the Word become flesh. And our Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. A number of you contacted me this week, or over the past number of weeks, as we enter that season that's part of the liturgical calendar called Lent. And you've asked me questions about it. Many of you asked me especially about Ash Wednesday. I'm not going to go into the whole history of where the traditions began. I understand them. I understand how they began and the value, the true, genuine, spiritual value they were when they were created. But I've studied all of church history to some extent. And so I understand how over the centuries, whatever the genuine value was, what it became. And it became somewhat of a symbol whether or not there was anything behind it in the heart. When you look at church history, when some of these practices were first instituted, the people who went to get ashes on Ash Wednesday were devout. Some of them crawled on their knees because they were so taken by the sin in their life. So I don't have a problem with a lot of traditions. I don't have a problem with a lot of the different ways in which liturgies are celebrated. I don't. If any of you have ever been to a wedding that I officiate, you'll notice it's the only time I wear a robe. I refer to it lovingly as my wedding dress. Mainly because it's a long robe and it's white. 
often when I wear the robe or when I'm teaching in a group of Christians that are from different parts of the body of Christ, I will also wear a clerical collar. You know, the collar with the thing that's backwards? That's how I refer to it anyway. I do that because if there is going to be a reason you don't listen to me, it's not going to be because of the clothes I wear or the clothes I don't wear. When I speak the word of God and God has impressed something on my heart, I'm going to do everything in my power to bridge whatever gap, whatever need you have to be able to not think about other things. Think about how different I might be from what you're used to. And I want you to hear the words that God has given me. I used to say, I'll wear anything. Then someone suggested I put on a clown makeup and I said, okay, almost anything. Because I need people to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. They need to see that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the one who died for us. And he's also the one who rose from the grave. And he lives and reigns forevermore. And that his power is real. But Pastor, how do you know his power is real? Well, first of all, I got through this message. <laughs> and I've only taken water a few times. But I know he's real when I look at all of you. And the lives that you've shared with me. I know he's real because... You're nothing like you used to be. You are a miracle. People say, show me signs and wonders. I tell them, come to church on Sunday. You will see signs and wonders. People who years ago would not have set foot in a church. And now they're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're here whenever the doors are open. That is a miracle. I'll close with this story. My father growing up was a good man, but he really never went to church with us. That wasn't his thing. Mom took us to church. And then as we got older, mom stayed home with dad and my two younger brothers really didn't go to church. And I went to church basically for one reason because I sang in the choir. But I enjoyed being there every week. I remember the pain that my father went through. Me as well. But my father went through when my mother died. And he had no way to turn. And he tried for weeks and months turning to a bottle. And that wasn't making life any better. I know what he was doing. He was trying to dull the pain to dull what he was feeling. And many people do that. And there were two problems with that. One, that's never going to dull pain. It may postpone it, but it's never going to take it away. And two, my father's in heaven right now, so I can say this. When he wasn't looking, I would take his bottle of gin and pour water into it. So whatever potency he was looking for, 
I was diluting the thing. I thought I was being a loving son. But I'll never forget, about a year or so after my mother died, he started coming to church. He was searching because he had realized on his own the bottle of gin wasn't going to do it. About eight months later, on a Sunday night, the church had to be twice the size of this one. It held 250 as far as seats, and there were about 15 people in that Sunday night service. And all of us sat toward the front, but my dad did what he normally did. He sat in the last seat in the last row. And Pastor Fox preached a message, and at the end, felt led to call to give a call for salvation. And after a few quiet moments, to the shock of his oldest son, my father walked up and gave his heart to Jesus. Yes, give God praise. Pastor, you can't say you've ever seen a sign or a miracle. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Because from that day, he was different. There wasn't a drop of alcohol ever allowed in that house ever again. My dad would be singing all the time. He had a decent voice, but he was singing to God. And he all the time, unlike what I remember growing up, he looked happy. Yeah, I've seen miracles as only can be done by the Son of God. So whatever the miracle in your life that you're looking for, whatever you're seeking today, turn to the Son of God because he and the Father are one.